You, both of you, I can see both of you moving about as well. I've, I've had a, a glance of uh, Mary's pyjama bottoms or whatever they are. <laughs> or, or are you going to be a chef? I'm not quite sure. It's Sunday. I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible somewhere that it says you can stay in your jammies all day on a Sunday. Good morning, Vietnam! I love the smell of napalm in the morning. My mother always tells me to smile and put on a happy face. She told me I had a purpose, to bring laughter and joy to the world. Is it just me? Or is it getting crazier out there? Welcome everybody back to the Movie Scramble podcast. I am your host as usual, Thomas, and I am joined by John. How are you? I'm very well, yes. I've been away for a couple of weeks uh, at the Sitges Film Festival over in Spain. So it's been all sunny and 25 degrees and it's just been absolutely wonderful. I saw 42 films in the time I was there in uh, nine days, which uh, meant that I came back whiter than I actually went out, but uh, I had a fantastic time and saw some really good films. Speaking of holidays, Mary's back from her 14th holiday this year. How are you? <laughs> I mean, if it makes you feel any better, like I caught a staph infection halfway through this holiday, so it, most of it was like me crying and wanting to go home. Um, I'm good. I've not been doing anything anywhere near as exotic as John. Um, I've just been working, and shamefully, I've only been to see like one film in the past two weeks. But luckily for me, it's the film we're talking about today, so that's good. <laughs> Indeed, and it does make me feel better that you were out on holiday, and that says a lot about me. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm a bit. I've got a bit of a cold, so you must bear with me. I've also hangover and a hangover and a cold. I would not recommend drinking rum while ill. Mm, uh, that's cool. my. Um, I'm not a doctor, so you don't have to take my advice. We are going to be discussing the new Joker film. Now, this is a movie that, when it was first announced, got a lot of controversy based on the, the idea and the concept of it. It was going to be a standalone movie. It was going to be an origin of Joker. It wasn't going to feature Batman. And it wasn't even really a comic book film. And it had the guy from The Hangover directing. I'm not going to lie. I wasn't, I wasn't that excited... And then Joaquin Phoenix got announced, and my interest definitely peaked, so to speak. Joaquin Phoenix is involved in this. It's going to be something special. There are always some still images. I released the first trailer, and I thought, yeah, there's going to be something really good. And it wasn't really what I expected, but I absolutely loved it. I was kind of on board for for it from the start to be perfectly honest because uh, I just like the concept of a, a Joker film. I know that uh, we're inundated with origin films these days but I thought yeah the Joker would be a good one to actually go for. Uh, it'd be nice to see how they do it and obviously uh, with Joaquin Phoenix involved you just know what it's it's going to it's going to be a quality product because he doesn't do bad films. I mean you just need to look at his filmography and you see there's very little in there that's anything less than excellent 
as far as I'm concerned, especially with his last film, uh, You Were Never Really Here, when you saw the performance in that, um, it was just uh, totally blew me out of the water. Such a good performance. The, the initial images uh, were very strange because I think a lot of people were expecting full-on Joker makeup the same way that Jared Leto, the first images of him, was uh, fully made up. But this was just like a, a washed-up guy, like long, straggly hair and pretty well unkempt, a bit like Thomas this morning. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, That's one of the best film-related digs I think we've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> and it just... It, it really piqued my interest, and then obviously, as you say, with the trailers and everything that came out. But initially, it was Martin Scorsese being involved in it that really sort of piqued my interest. I thought this is going to be something a wee bit different. He doesn't get involved in uh, sort of comic book films, and he's obviously come out very recently and said, uh, which is something we'll go into later. But I was uh, totally blown away by it when I saw it. I was thinking that it was going to be good. But as soon as it started, I thought this is a completely different type of film that I was expecting. And I just loved every single minute of it. I was very unsettled uh, during the whole of the, the film. It's not a film that you can really say that you enjoy. But then again, it's not a film that you say you'd endure either. It's somewhere in between that. It's one that's it's compelling. That's a pretty good way to put it, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's utterly gripping, and you, you can't take your eyes off it for even though you want to at times. You're just <laughs> utterly transfixed by Arthur's descent into being the Joker, and oh, it's just it's just it's very unnerving, very unsettling. Yeah, I only saw it just at the uh, end of the week. There, um, I absolutely loved it. Like, I had no idea what I was expecting but I've always been kind of fascinated by the character of the Joker I think he is one of those sort of definitive villains that if you were to ask you know 100 people name a movie villain most of them would come up with the Joker so for me I was really intrigued as John said Joaquin Phoenix doesn't really give a bad performance he can do vulnerable and sweet as he did in her or he can do sort of that violent edginess as he did in You Were Never Really Here and it's interesting that Martin Scorsese was attached to the project project sorry because for me this was almost like the kind of comedy meets taxi driver. It was this kind of, not an homage to sort of 70s cinema, but it did have huge overtones of those types of films. And I get that there's been some controversy around the film um, in terms of how they're portraying, you know, mental health and uh, its relationship perhaps with, with violence. Although as somebody who has mental health issues, I don't really like using that term relationship with. But I thought that whilst the character of Arthur was relatively sympathetic in the sense that he'd had, you know, a shitty upbringing, he was sort of the punching bag at work and in life. And, you know, you see loads of examples of that. There's nothing in it that condones what then follows his transformation into Joker. Joaquin Phoenix's performance is absolutely sensational like his physicality um you know reminiscent of um christian bale and the machinist that really sunken you know you can see every sort of muscle and sinew in his back he's absolutely incredible and to me the film was almost like a sort of indictment of maybe capitalism it, it, it kind of had these sort of huge sort of overtones of you know resistance and change movements and all that sort of thing um and one of the most beautiful shots in the film is 
in Arthur's notebook um, and it really stood out for me and it said you know what's the funniest thing about having a mental health problem people expect you to behave as if you don't and that for me really really struck a chord because and anyone who does have mental health issues when you you know you need to literally put on a smile and go to work or whatever that really struck a chord and it totally surprised me when the credits rolled and I was like Todd Phillips how do I know that name and Chris was like oh it's the guy that directed The Hangover and that really took me like, I couldn't <clears throat> believe that it was the same guy because the Hangover movies were sort of brash and you know really overtly comic and this was something you know that as John said it kind of leaves you unsettled the whole way through but I absolutely loved it loved it yeah you, you, we keep uh, saying how we left us unsettled then it's supposed to that's 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 definitely not a criticism or something to be seen, seen as a negative and you mentioned kind of like, the mental health portrayal mm-hmm. in it that's really kind of split opinion where there's been people who think it's been misrepresented and i am the other side of that i think it is accurate i think there's things to relate to in it but as you say you do feel sorry for Arthur at points, especially at the beginning of the film. And this isn't a spoiler, it's in the trailer. When you mm-hmm. see him getting beat up, he's beat up by kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just like, oh my God, you're so pathetic. And you feel sorry for him because he's just so pitiful. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't condone anything that he does. Yeah. And you see him kind of gradually, in some ways he's gradually becoming Joker, and in other ways he always was Joker. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's, you know, is it a comment on has has society created this villain because, you know, we're letting somebody with mental health issues slip through the net and, you know, they're, they've not got a good life and their living situation and all that sort of thing. So there is all these kind of themes running through it. But as you say, it's like, you know, is that something that was, it's the whole nature versus nurture, isn't yeah. it? Is that something that was always <sighs> in him or is that something that's been brought out by the life that he lives? Yeah, it seemed to be inevitable to me anyway that Arthur was always going to become Joker. It wasn't really that he was looking for an excuse or a reason. It was an opportunity mm-hmm. um, to become this true self, so to speak. And talking about Wacken Phoenix's performance, um, he's talking about his physicality. Yeah. We see him as Arthur at the beginning of the film. The way he walks, the way he stands, the way he carries himself, mm-hmm. it's entirely different to when he becomes Joker. He walks with more swagger. He's mm-hmm. all magnetic. He's got a charisma almost about him. Yeah, and what I loved as well is that whenever he was walking throughout the film, either as Arthur or as Joker, whether he had clown shoes on or not, he always walked like he did. There was like this clear, like, you know what Joaquin Phoenix looks like and walks like. and But with this, it was it didn't feel like we were watching Joaquin Phoenix. It felt like you were watching a completely different person. His physicality was incredible. And the full, you know, credit to the makeup and costume you know, dude's walking around looking like John Wayne Gacy when he's got the full makeup on. Absolutely incredible. And a real step away from the previous incarnations of the Joker. And I think that was important as well, is that this Joker was never designed to compete with Heath Ledger's or whoever. It's, it's a completely standalone product, as it were. When you're watching the film, you forget as Joaquin Phoenix. And that's an incredible feat to achieve. He'll probably be totally overlooked come awards season, but because it is quite a controversial subject and quite a controversial film. Um, but he, as far as I'm concerned, he deserves to sweep the board. That was unbelievable. See if this wasn't a mainstream film called Joker. Mm-hmm. Take away the DC element to it. Make it an independent film. People would be gushing over this in a different way. But yeah. seems to be certain audiences and critics that don't like films like this in the mainstream. They like <laughs> it being at a certain level. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because... It, 
as you said there, if this had been sort of some sort of indie, I genuinely think there would be some sort of rallying cry for let's improve our mental health services because look what happens when people slip through the net. But because it's Joker and it's DC, I think people are like, oh, well, it's commercial and it's just there to make money. So they focus on the wrong things about the film. They focus on the, the violent elements of it as opposed to, you know, let's take a look at what happens when we really let people down. It's interesting, can I just quite touch on the Heath Ledger thing briefly? Um, as a fan theory... Mm-hmm. regarding his joker that he was a, a veteran ah right okay uh, it's, it's quite a compelling fan feed actually uh-huh. and if you apply the same kind of messages of todd phillips joker to christopher nolan's joker as he fled you if you take his fan feed into account that's somebody else who's also slipped through the net totally yeah mm-hmm. absolutely i agree with that because look at likes of examples in the marvel side of things with punisher and all that storyline of you know ptsd and, and vets and stuff like that yeah that makes a lot of sense and there is a similar quote actually from uh, Alan Mills' The Killing Joke, which um, Joker draws some inspiration from, and The Punisher, when it's uh, the, the quotes are very similar, you're only one bad day away from becoming me. Mm. Oh, I like that. John, you went to see a press screening, what was the general feeling like? Uh, it was it was very positive, to be honest. Um, it was one of these uh, situations where uh, the room was actually full for a change. Usually in press screenings, there's maybe about a dozen, maybe about 15 at the most, but this was uh, completely uh, packed. I think there was uh, like BAFTA Scotland members there and things like that as well, because obviously it's, I think it's one of these films that's getting flagged up for uh, consideration uh, for awards starting next year, even if it doesn't ultimately make it. But yeah, the, the vibe in the room was really positive after it. A lot of people were saying, wasn't what I was expecting. Like we've touched on, you know, it's not a typical comic book film. Uh, it asks some really serious questions about mental health issues and the way that uh, people are getting treated in society, which uh, other film, as you say, other films tend to do. One of the other films I saw on that day was uh, uh, Sorry We Missed You, which is about the gig economy. And that's a similar sort of idea about the way people are treated when they're at the sort of low, lower uh, rungs of society and uh, the way they're exploited and this was exactly the same as that yeah i, th- I think it, it it's been reflected in the the reviews that have actually come out from a lot of people they have uh, come out in a very positive way with regards to them so i it was good one thing i did like at the very start of the film was the first time that joaquin phoenix laughs which is almost at the very start of the film. Mm-hmm. And you hear this, you hear him laughing just before you see him. And he's starting laughing, you think, okay, this is gonna go this is gonna go a certain way. It's a bit of a, a manic laugh. And then you when you actually see him, you think, is he practicing this because he's practicing because he's a clown? But then he starts holding his chest and he's he's writhing about. And you see the, the guy's in pain. This is actually hurting him. He doesn't want to laugh. He doesn't need to laugh, but he's compelled to. And obviously it goes into that with the, the fact that uh, he's, he's handing out cards to people whenever he's, he's laughing in public and everything, saying, you know, I have a condition that causes this. And that really just that sets the tone for the whole film right there. The fact that this guy is not, he is in control, but he's not in control of certain elements of his life. And those certain elements of his life are going to define what he becomes. 
And I think that goes back to what Simi was saying about mm. is this something that's always been within him? Because he does try to really repress the laughs. Like, you see him struggling against them. Um, I thought the way he executed the actual Joker laugh is incredible. It's what everyone's waiting for, right? They want to hear how he does it. I think it really ties into what Simi was saying about something that's in him all along and he's kind of fighting against it the whole way or most of the way through the, the movie. What I would say about Joker as well is that unlike most comic book movies, if we're calling it that, um, they kind of fall down on the third act. The third act in this is possibly one of the strongest I've seen from a, a DC movie or a Marvel movie. I thought it was you know executed really, really well and, and certainly drew a lot of audible gasps and reactions in the cinema that, that I went to see it in. I thought I thought it was um, excellent and Phoenix really builds all these different layers and nuances into the character the whole way through and it does, it leaves you really conflicted and as you said John, it's not something you enjoy but it's not something you endure either, it just sort of leaves you hanging somewhere in the middle. Yeah, well probably his, his surroundings as well obviously because it's set in New York late 70s I believe, sort of 78, 79 I think it's meant oh. to be set and obviously New York was Going through a real period of uh, transition at that time, it was it was pretty much it was pretty near bankrupt as far as I can uh, recall from the time. Um, so the well, it's not it's New York, but New York was obviously the basis for Gotham. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. what I'm saying here, obviously. So um, it was a bit of a shitty city, if you like. You know, there was not much going for it. Everything was grim. Everything was dirty. His, his working environment, where all the clowns are getting ready. It's just it's a, it's a horrible wee stinky place with just, you know, it, it just looks terrible all the time. There's nothing good about it. Uh, and that kind of informs his mental attitude and the attitude of everyone around him, like the cops, about all the kids, how they, as you say, how they beat him up and everything as well. Uh, and obviously, Thomas Wayne, uh, who gets introduced at one point. Now, if you think about how Thomas Wayne's been portrayed pretty much everywhere else he's been this almost this uh, sort of philanthropist type of character now here he's a hard-nosed businessman who may or may not be the the man that a lot of people think is he's obviously uh, talking about running for mayor here and he's just he's a nasty character as well there are no likable characters in this film whatsoever that's kind of what i was getting at earlier the way i read things or whatever you want to call it is that I almost felt like Thomas Wayne was being pitched as the villain because Gotham's in this mess and he's, you know, the kind of yuppie boys on the train that that work for him and he is sort of seen as this kind of bad seed in the city and I thought it was really interesting because, you know, as you say, up until now, he's been this sort of, you know, martyr figure and he's definitely not in this film that's a clear choice that some that, you know, maybe Todd Phillips or whatever has made he's not, um, he's not who you think he is did you notice the clocks as well in the film? By any no. chance? No. 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 If you think back on when they used to advertise clocks and watches when it used to be analog, mm-hmm. it was always ten past ten that the clocks were set to because it's a nice, happy, smiling face. Yeah. That they use. Well, in this film, um, when he's in with his therapist and when he's clocking into work, I think maybe there's maybe three or four different occasions. The clocks are all set to five past eleven. Now, if you think about what five past eleven looks like, it's more of a grimace, ah. a smile. So it's like a, it's, it's almost <laughs> like a forced smile. Now, at first, I saw it the first time, and I thought, okay. But then, when you see it, it recurs, and that's obviously an indication, and it's almost like his uh, state of mind, if you like. 
And, and it's, it's just, like the it whole just, thing of him pulling up the two yes, sides of the car. exactly, oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's just one of these wee clever uh, touches that, uh, unfortunately, I'm uh, geeky enough to actually pick up on. <laughs> yeah, how, how, how is this the same guy who directed The Hangover? You know, <laughs> it's like... I know. Not, I know the Hangover films are very successful comedies. I'm not the biggest fan of them, I have to be said. I think they're very overrated. He did War Dogs as well, remember? I did like War Dogs. I liked War Dogs, to be fair. Oh, see, the only other film I could think of that he did was that Judy, which is also... Yeah, okay. I didn't see that, I don't think. Oh, that well, that it. was pretty much like The Hangover, yeah. That was yeah. Robert Downey Jr., wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly, Gareth Nackes. One of the biggest things uh, from this film was we were, and I kind of really picked this up second time, the score. The score is absolutely incredible. I've already got it on Spotify. It is, like, soul-studding. Like the beautiful, you know, cellos and double basses they've got the whole way through. The strings are incredible. Uh, Gary Glitter songs aside, um, I loved it. <laughs> uh, before I forget, sure. is is your saying, John, about how you feel? He's kind of like he's he's practicing his laugh. Oh, you thought mm. he was practicing his laugh at the beginning of the film? Yes. He's got two laughs when you when you when you watch it. He's got he's uncontrollable, like laughter, and he's got this other laugh that almost puts on. When if when something is supposed to be funny, yes, I like when he's sitting in the club listening to the comedian, or he's uh, taking notes, trying to figure out what's mm-hmm. funny, and he's laughing. He's looking round, and everybody else is laughing, and he's going, "What are they laughing at? I've got no idea." Here, but he, he feels he, he feels compelled to actually get involved. You're right, yeah. And it's a completely different laugh. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's 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 still a forced laugh, but it's not one that actually hurts him because he's in control of it. Yeah, it's like he's uncontrollable laugh. Although it's paining him to do it, it that's his real laugh. Mm-hmm. And this other laugh is like, this is me trying to fit in, trying to laugh at things that should be funny, but I'm not finding it funny. And then as he kind of evolves into the Joker, he realizes, no, I actually find this other stuff funny. I find killing people hilarious. I find nihilism of life. Um, that's where his humor is. I was going to say, I thought that scene in the club really underlined the fact that he had no idea as to regular social cues and and normalcy because of the type of upbringing that he'd had, this sort of odd relationship that he seems to have with his mother where you're not quite sure if they are sharing the bed or not and it's all a bit Norman Batesy. And then he goes to that club and it really underlines the fact that he's not been exposed to sort of normal, you know, patterns of speech or as I say social cues so he is doing this sort of forced laugh just because everybody else is doing it and he's so desperate to to be part of something and join in but I thought that really highlighted the fact that he was very much on the outside of of, of everything to the extent where he he couldn't even understand what a joke was and it's it's a very unique kind of origin for the Joker and if anybody's fans of comics and that which I'm sure a few people here listening will be the Joker's got many different origins there's no definitive one. People think that Alan Moore's The Killing Joke has been the origin story, but it's just one of many. And this just adds to it, in my opinion. And when you see him become Joker in the third act, regardless how he got there, he's undeniably Joker. Mm-hmm. The way he kind of moves, his mannerisms, his laughter, he's, 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 he's very recognisable, it's very familiar. Even though it's very original and unique, it's still very much a Joker you would recognise, in my opinion. Yeah, it's like the way you say, the, the way he holds himself when he actually fully becomes Joker. He's no longer slouching. When he's, uh, like, there's uh, a scene towards the end, which I won't go into, but he's sitting in a chair and he's upright 
and his head's up and he's engaging and he's addressing people. And if you think about it, it in these sort of later elements of the film, he never laughs. He's very, very, very serious mm-hmm. about what he's doing and he's very focused. And at that point, he can engage with uh, people quite easily because it's on his terms rather than on uh, sort of societal norm terms because he's the one that's leading the conversation at that point. Interesting enough, you talk about the kind of laugh, there's one bit towards the end of the last, and it's that fake kind of cackle he puts mm. on. As he becomes Joker, he never does the uncontrollable laughter anymore. Yeah. And the kind of the last five, ten minutes of the film, not to kind of spoil it, that's when you see him, he looks genuinely happy for the first time. Yes, he smiles. He actually smiles as if he's smiling because he's he's achieved something mm-hmm. uh, within himself. He's happy with him. He's, he's happy in his own skin at that point. Yeah, and unbelievable. So, I'm a big fan of the kind of comedy as a film, and it had so many little sort of Easter egg almost type things that were kind of influenced by that. And I just I felt like I was watching like a seventies you know Scorsese movie. I absolutely loved it, and I kind of liked the fact that it sort of backed away from the traditional kind of comic book style. Um, and as I said, I think uh, Wikian Phoenix deserves you know a lot of, of recognition for this, but unfortunately, I think, given the controversy surrounding it, I don't think you'll get it. Yeah, and regarding, kind of, like, there's been a different kind of original comic book movie, so to speak, it's Warner Brothers are going to start, this is this is the first film they're going to launch under DC Black, mm-hmm. so we can expect maybe more films like this, where DC's tried the whole big expanded universe thing, and mm-hmm. it hasn't really worked for them in the same way that it has for Marvel. And I think their strength is going to be these kind of standalone films. That's what Warner Brothers has always succeeded. we got Superman and Batman in that. The Dark Knight trilogy, Christopher Reeve, it's that's those standalone films that's been their bread and butter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the animated stuff as well, up until, well, I think the first uh, 16 or 17 of those, they were all pretty much standalone efforts, all the... Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice League and Batman and Superman and stuff and it was only then that they actually started to link them but even then it was loose enough that you still had a whole bunch of standalone stories and as you say that's what made them the money and what earned them uh, the reputation for these characters as well so yeah I think it's a, I think it's good they've talked about the uh, the whole like Justice League dark and all the, the sort of DC dark stuff for a wee while now and uh, introducing all sorts of characters to it um, so it'll be interesting to see, but yeah, I think they're they're basically like you said in your review. They're they're basically saying, well, we're just going to do our own thing here. We're not going to try and emulate the Marvel model. We don't have the the time to do that. We're just going to do what we're going to do now. If it links up later on, fine. But you know, we just want to make quality films and we want to make money. And let's face it, even when they were making films that uh, got completely panned by critics, they still made a hell of a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, I love the Marvel films, and I do like the big universe and the crossover. And then again, I got to the TV series, I was like, oh, okay, I'm enjoying The Punisher, I'm enjoying Daredevil, and then it just got more and more and more, and I'm like, I don't have the time to watch all of this content. And with DC, they've got a lot of kind of TV stuff, and for the most part, it's all separate. You can watch Krypton without having to watch Arrow. You can watch Gotham without having to watch the, um, the Shazam film. You know, it's like they're all kind of their own things, and... A lot of people will, I think, be attracted to the Joker because they can just go and watch Joker. They don't have to watch anything before or after. They won't feel what they're missing out on anything. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, there are wee bits in there if you, uh, you you are actually looking for that stuff, but it it's been marketed as not that type of film, so uh, nobody's really get any complaints when they go and say, you know, where was Superman? Where was where yeah. were the shops? Where were the shots of Metropolis? You know, it, it is not that type of film. It no. Really well, I think it's safe to say that's a recommend from me, Mary. Oh, absolutely, recommend from me, John. Yeah, totally. It'll be interesting to see what our end of year lists are going to be shaping up like because I think this may feature in uh, at least three of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny actually saying that I haven't seen a film like it to be fair. I, it's just something that really stuck with me. The only other film I can compare it to that I've seen this year is Bundle Road. Oh, I mm. love that. I see, well, I was saying up until now, I think Midsummer had probably been top of my list, but now this has changed things. <laughs> yeah. I loved Midsummer though as well. That was a whole other experience. <laughs> well, I would say if you've seen Joker, and uh, obviously used to have, if you listen, if you've watched it, go and watch it again. It definitely does merit repeat viewing. Yep. I'm going to book my viewing for like 11 o'clock on a Tuesday where hopefully there'll be no idiots. <laughs> <laughs> you don't listen, do you? You just ask the same questions every week. How's your job? Are you having any negative thoughts? All I have are negative thoughts. Okay, well that's our thoughts on Joker. Let us know your thoughts on Facebook and Twitter and any other way you want to contact us. Since we're discussing one of the most iconic villains in movie history, we've decided to have our top three movie villains now. For those just tuning in the podcast for the first time, we do operate a draft system, so to avoid picking the same things. Mary sometimes just likes to disregard this system. Um, <laughs> I have our choices anyway, just go, I'm just going to pick five choices here. Yeah. I'm supposed to pick one each. Nah, not having that. I play by my own rules. This is However, a dictatorship. Has, <laughs> has uh, behaved this time, which doesn't happen often. Yep. So, I'm not believe... well, that's why. You've taken advantage of me in my state. <laughs> We're feeling sorry for you. That's why we, we gave you first choice. <laughs> you gave first choice, you know. So, we picked our top three movie villains. We asked you to do the same. We'll go over ours first and then we'll go to Twitter and Facebook and see what you picked. Maybe as you had first choice, you're first up. Okay, well, given that we were talking about, you know, controversy surrounding, like, assault, etc. Um, <laughs> one of my favourites is John Doe from the movie Seven, played by Kevin Spacey. And everyone knows that I was, am a massive Kevin Spacey fan. And controversy aside, I think this is one of the best thrillers I have ever seen. And I think that his villain is one of the best, if not the all-time best uh, on-screen villain. I will never forget the first time that I watched Seven and to this day, the bit where the corpse sort of exhales still absolutely makes me shit myself because I can never work out the timing of it. Um, what I loved about Spacey's villain is that he's actually, he's very elusive. So you don't really see John Doe for the majority of the film. It's maybe a glimpse of somebody running away or a, a message left behind. And in fact, Kevin Spacey purposefully avoided all the press junkets um, when the movie came out to sort of create this real mystery around the character, um, you know, to sort of not allow people to get to know him, I think. And as I say, all you see is the sort of bodies or whatever that, that he leaves behind. 
And I think what struck me is that when you do finally get to see him and he has actual screen time is that you were expecting a monster, somebody, you know, physically huge, you know, really strong voice, sort of overwhelming, overpowering. And he's not. He's this really calmly spoken, you know, skinny dude. He's everything that he says is very polite and straightforward and that almost sort of, you know, sing song voice where everything's, you know, on the level. And I think that's what makes him so terrifying is that he is so calm. I mean, we see the destruction that he's left behind, you know, the sort of crudely posed bodies and the awful ways that these people have died. But he's not anything special. And I guess that's kind of the whole point is that, you know, villains or whatever you want to call them, bad guys are just everyday people that you walk past in the street and that you don't give them a second glance. There is that old statistic of like, what is it you walk past eight serial killers in your lifetime or something like that. And I think this kind of plays into this fact that he is just somebody that you would walk past in the street. And obviously as the film builds, this sort of final, what's in the box? He retains this level of calm that you just wouldn't, ex- you want him to lose his temper and become this sort of, you know, fire-breathing dragon or whatever, but he doesn't. And I think that's what makes him so scary and so watchable to this day is that he's not this sort of pantomime, moustache-twirling villain. He is so calm, so controlled, and just, you know, yeah, as I say, a guy you would walk past in the street. It's one of my all-time sort of favourite films because there's so many bits of it that sort of make you jump or make you think or you see things differently each time you watch it and you know love him or hate him I think Spacey's performance is absolutely outstanding and just utterly terrifying in how calm he is brilliant yeah and it's incredible as well it's like this, he's, he's barely in the film yeah he's the main villain in Seven he's the bad guy and he's hardly in it and you're just saying about kind of composed and very calm when he's speaking to Brad Pitt's character at the end, he's trying to goad him. Mm-hmm. And he goes, oh, you didn't know. Uh-huh. And it's just like, oh, I punch you. Oh, Thomas, that has actually just given me chills hearing that in my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> oh. It's an absolutely it's an incredible performance in Kevin Spacey's part. And yeah. But just... He's so elusive. And I think that's kind of why I like it as well, that he's he's almost not the big presence that you want him to be and that's what makes him so scary is because he's not there and you don't know where he is. Oh yeah, well Seven's one of the one of my top 10 films of all time. Uh, I, it was sort of a, a golden period, sort of mid-90s. There was quite a few films come out. He was obviously involved in a few of them. And as you say, it's a performance where you never uh, see him getting angry. He's always in control even when He's never really in control, uh, but it's all in his terms, every single part of that film. And it's with the best villains, the best bad guys, you you hardly see them at all. You don't, they're always in the shadows, they're always in the background. They're always getting talked about, but they're never really there. It's like Bruce the Shark in Jaws as well. The less you see of it, the, the better it actually is, because there's a mythos that builds up in your own mind about the character as well. So yeah, aye, spot on choice, well done. Thanks, guys. So I'll go next then since I picked second and I'm going to go with Clarence Bodica from Robocop nice. played by Kurtwood Smith this is one of the most evil dastardly just in your face slimy scumbag villains I mean say um, what you really think <laughs> yeah, I, 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 
I mean, it's like he's everything that John Doe isn't in that sense. He's a guy you would walk past in the street, you would just know he's evil. He's got this really like punchable grin. He just looks it just looks nasty. He's a cop killer. He has no problem killing his own men. There is no redeeming qualities of this guy whatsoever. Um I'm sure most people have seen Robocop, and this isn't really a spoiler, it's part of the plot. When he kills Murphy at the beginning of the film, he doesn't just kill him, he taunts him, he plays with him. And yeah, it's just, there's just nothing likeable about this guy whatsoever. <laughs> and he's quite cowardly as well when you see kind of Robocop try to arrest him and he just basically spills his guts about who he's working for. Yeah, just um, very, a brilliant performance by Kurt Smith. Uh, really really a memorable villain and he gets his comeuppance in the end when spoiler alert he gets stabbed in the throat <laughs> and i even love the part at the end of the film when he's kind of like it becomes an almost comic book bad guy he's been this really evil almost like grounded type of villain and then at the end when he stabs robocop with this big massive like pole and he goes sayonara robocop and it's just like a few <laughs> like one liner you know, they just, it shouldn't work, and it does work brilliantly. The fact that he calls him Robocop, <laughs> I don't know why, it just really amuses me. And then, like I said, they get stabbed in the throat, and it's just a really brutal death, but really, really deserving, really satisfying to watch. I think he was one of the reasons why the, the follow-ups never really worked in the same way, because he never had that sort of same level of villain attached to it. No, but no, it's interesting though. I mean, Robocop 2 does have a lot of like faults to it. I do really like the villain. Mm. He's a, a, a kind of like uh, messiah like guy who's a drug dealer, but believes he's really kind of like pure and good. Mm-hmm. Is there a Robocop 5? Because you always seem to pick films that go on to like <laughs> their 7th no. or 8th installment getting progressively worse as they go along. <laughs> There is only the three Robocop movies of the original um, series, but after the third one, they started making like TV movies and that. And right. they kind of marketed a lot more kind of kid-friendly. When Robocop I stopped... mean, that doesn't seem... Okay. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't shoot people. It would like, shoot like a pole and like, <laughs> things would fall on people and stuff. It was... <laughs> As a kid watching it, it was actually okay. It was, it was great. It was quite fun. It was quite, it was quite harmless. But... I mean, I watched Robocop, the actual film, a lot as a kid. This is, this is a movie that was, apart from the content of the actual film itself, should have been a kid's film, by all means. Mm. You know, it's marketable superhero good guy. I mean, you know, don't say a... that when those big Marvel and DC execs tune into our podcast. They're going to steal all your ideas, Thomas. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> Yeah, there's also a Robocop cartoon as well, but no, John, I, I, I do agree, like, uh, the villains, the f- it was more the remake of Robocop that I felt was missing that villain, it was missing that Clarence body kill. I quite like the remake, I think it's okay for what it is, but mm-hmm. it's got Michael Keaton in it, and it, it still misses that villain presence that the first movie really has. Like I said, I, I thought the guy uh, the guy played Kane in the second one, the villain there was quite good, but yeah, nothing beats Clarence body kill for me, he's just absolutely brilliant. Mm, good choice, good choice. I miss your first choice, John. My first choice is the Reverend Harry Powell from the film Night of the Hunter. Now, I think I've spoken about Night of the Hunter before. 
I think we spoke about, was it first-time directors or something? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, uh, this is obviously the main character, and he's uh, a, a preacher man who is also like a, a, a criminal and uh, a, a con artist. He finds out about um, money that one of his cellmates has hidden away, and he goes to try and find it, and he ingratiates himself with the, uh, the man's family, and he ends up marrying his wife, and... Uh, basically terrorising the kids. Now, it's Robert Mitchum in the, the role, and he is so bloody evil. He's just, he's a nasty man. And it's, uh, there are similarities to the likes of uh, Kevin Spacey's performance because he rarely goes above sort of a resting heartbeat rate. He's always very calm and composed. He gets a bit worked up when he talks about the Bible and uh, uh, shows everybody his knuckles, love and hate, on uh, both his hands, uh, which is meant to uh, epitomise the, the, the eternal struggle uh, that man has with himself and the devil and everything like that. It's such a compelling performance in one of these pretty much perfect films. It's a black and white noirish type film. Uh, it's really, really subtle atmosphere to it. Um, it was one that wasn't really appreciated at the time. It got panned critically. It wasn't a commercial success. It was only really later on that uh, people really sort of come back around to it. Uh, it was one of Robert Mitchum's favourite roles. He said he had the most fun of doing anything, uh, actually playing the role as well. And um, it's one of these characters that has been uh, revived, if you like, by others in various uh, TV shows, and there seems to be quite a lot of uh, sort of parodies of them over the years. The, probably one of the best ones is from the, the Ren and Stimpy show <laughs> from the 90s. It was, uh, I think, uh, it was the Reverend Jack Cheese, he was called, and he had pity and self-pity on his knuckles, which is quite something. Uh, but it's just one of these characters that you, you just remember it's one of the main things from from cinema it's just such a good role and such an evil evil bastard especially when he's uh like terrorizing the kids without actually ever touching them it's just oh spine chilling really really good yeah i love robert mitchum um, and i think that's one of his best like but again he's one of these like actors who is He's quite handsome, like I think in a kind of unusual way, and he probably could have gone another route with his career, but he did make really interesting choices with the roles that he played, and he sort of stayed away from the sort of kind of pretty boy kind of hero looks and went for something different, and Night of the Hunter is a fantastic film. I've still not seen it. Well, I was inspired by you guys, and I watched Kill Bill for the first time um, when I was in my, my sick bed, um, and it I, I finally understood what you were talking about on her Tarantino podcast, which was nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mary, your next choice. Okay, so my next choice is my favourite film of all time, which is Alfred Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt. And the villain in that is obviously Uncle Charlie, played by Joseph Cotton. Um, I love this kind of for the same reasons that I love the, the John Doe character in the sense that Charlie is, you know, sort of kind of classically suave. You know, he's got, he's suited and booted. He's, he's very popular wherever he goes. He's seen as a sort of nice guy. He doesn't raise his voice. He's, as John said, it's, everything's at that sort of, you know, rest and heartbeat kind of level. And 
but he's also you know a really good con artist because everyone in his family apart from his niece which I'll get onto later and everyone in the town that he goes to visit um thinks he's this great guy you know he holds the door open he makes sure that his family have presents that he's you know bought from traveling all this sort of thing but underneath all of that is you know the fact that he is uh, a murderer um, and he, one of my favourite scenes, I think that's why I love this movie so much, is he's sitting at the dinner table and he starts talking about, you know, these kind of widows and how they're sort of pig-like and, you know, they're they're greedy and they have all this money and they don't know what to do with it. And it sort of builds and builds and builds until eventually Joseph Cotton turns around and makes eye contact with you and the audience. And I remember the first time I saw it, I actually held my breath because it's very unusual for characters in the cinema, not on TV to sort of break the fourth wall and actually look at you and I think when it's somebody who is a villain and somebody who you know is inherently bad to actually have that eye contact it does kind of make your heart flutter a little bit because you're like oh no he can see me <laughs> um, and just a you know a brilliant performance from, from Joseph Cotton you know he's charismatic he's slick he's he's charming but at the same time there's this real sense of just this total bad guy somebody who's really unhappy with their situation in life and views other people as 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 prey really especially you know it's elderly widows that he seems to be targeting so not even somebody who's his own size he's preying on somebody who's who's weaker and in a more vulnerable position because he thinks he has more right to their money than than they do and the dynamic between um him and his niece also called Charlie so there's this beautiful duality throughout the film because she's this sort of you know pure virginal all-american girl but he's obviously the bad the bad Charlie whatever you want to call it and they have this wonderful dynamic the whole way through and she obviously is the one who finally unravels sort of who he he really is and I just think it's as I say it's my favorite film of all time um and I just think Joseph Cotton is, is outstanding in it yeah really really good film a uh, film I also haven't seen Thomas. I know. I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have it. I've got a Hitchcock box set there as well. Um, it's not. It's not ever regarded as one of Hitchcock's best. Um, but I just there's something about it. I just I love it, and I'll never tire watching it. Especially his performance and that whole sort of when he turned around to finally make eye contact with you. It does. It freaks me out. Was uh, Joseph Cotton kind of playing against type in this film because he's one of these. Uh, character actors that seems to, I mean, he obviously worked with Orson Welles and mm-hmm. he's, he's done quite a lot of stuff where he's been uh, basically a character actor. He's not been like the main antagonist or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, I would say so. There, there's certain elements of it of, you know, there's a lot of kind of, in a way, this is a kind of stereotypical villain because there is that whole, you know, wink to the audience of like, you know, he's the bad guy sort yeah. of thing. But it, it, but it's not executed in a way that's kind of hammy or cheesy or whatever. Like Cotton really commits to the role, if if you can see that, and I think he he does the sort of slick and charming side really really well. But equally, as I say, there's something that's like you know bubbling under the surface, and it's like he's got this kind of pristine suit on the whole way through, but you expect him to take it off, and his shirt would be really dirty or something because there is this kind of thing like under the surface the whole way through. And yeah, it, it, it's not a kind of stock villain he, he is a kind of more sort of nuanced p- performance than that but he, he's brilliant he's absolutely brilliant interesting i'll add it to my list <laughs> of films that i have never watched probably <laughs> <laughs> you should watch night of the hunter as well it's, it's absolutely brilliant i know it's one of those films i've always like i should watch it's a film i probably should watch especially since john mentions it at least every second podcast <laughs> yeah, yeah one of these days you'll watch it <laughs> 
Uh, Sammy, right. you're up. Yep. I am going to go with... He was bossing Battle Royale. No. Yes. I mean, I've seen it, Mary. Oh, my God. Sorry. Oh, you're missing out. I just have it on DVD. I'll add it to the list. Well, basically, for those that haven't seen Battle Royale, it's a, basically a remake of The Hunger Games. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Yes. But it's all the school children that are put on an island with collars on and forced to fight each other to the death. They're there against their will, except for one guy, Kazuo Kriyami, who is played by Masanobu Ando. He is described as probably the one guy who willingly signed up for this. <laughs> they're all there against their will, just see school children, forced to kill each other. He actually loves it. He's sadistic, he's enigmatic, he's cold, he's emotionless, and he's a total and utter psychopath. He never speaks the entire film. It's possible that he's even mute, but he's just so cool how he looks. He's got his kind of like, um, his school uniform is different from the rest of them because he's not at the same school as him. He's a, tr- a transfer student, so to speak. Um, he's got this like, crazy, wild, like uh, orange hair. And it just looks like a real-life anime kind of character. And he stands out so much like physically and visually from the rest of the characters. And like I said, it's just something so utterly cool, but evil about him. Uh, he's not a likeable character in the slightest, and you, keep, you just keep wanting him to get his comeuppance. But yeah, absolutely brilliant performance. Uh, really, really good character. I'm a big fan. And I mean, that film's got some great villains in it as it is. Uh, Takeshi Kitano as the head teacher. He's just brilliant in everything he does. But yeah, Kazuo Kiriyama is my pick. He is awesome. Well, you've sold this. I'm going to watch it. Because, oh, Mary, honestly, it's a brilliant film. It's so good. The sequel, not so much. But just pretend it didn't happen. Watch the first one. I think, okay. you'll be, I think you'll be hooked with the opening scene, to be honest oh. with you. Okay. Especially My just... problem was that I watched um, Kill Bill after I had seen Annika Rice do a Charleston um, on Strictly Come Dancing that was Kill Bill theme. So in my head now that's been ruined so I'm going to try and not watch anything that might influence my viewing of Battle Royale <laughs> well we went and we released Battle Royale on DVD and the the, the cover whole oh, it was very influenced by the Hunger Games uh... I think even put the Hunger Games on the cover and you're like come on I remember the author from the Hunger Games whose name escapes me was saying I've never heard of Battle Royale when I wrote the books I'm like really? really? Sure mm, it sounds almost identical but sure um, I like yeah. the way it was described as a battle royale with cheese. Uh, that's how the, <laughs> the Hunger Games was described at one point, <laughs> which I thought was very clever. It's very clever, yeah. <laughs> uh, my third choice is uh, Commodus from the Gladiator film. Oh. Another Joaquin uh, <coughs> Phoenix performance of uh, some measure. Uh, this time he's he's more up front. He, he's almost uh, if if the Romans had moustaches, he would be the one that would be twirling his. He is just evil all the way through. He's he's a horrible horrible character right from the very start. Uh, when you're introduced to him, you see him uh, practicing his swordsmanship with uh, several other Roman uh, soldiers and. Everything seems to be done on his terms. It looks very good at first when he's doing it. He's fighting maybe six or seven guys, turning around, slashing and hacking at various people. But then you see, actually, this is all very controlled. It's all on his terms. 
he well, he's, I, I'm going to uh, so do some mild spoilers for Gladiator uh, in that when he finds out that he's not going to be uh, taking over from his father, he kills his father, <laughs> which is not much of a spoiler, let's face it, in terms of the whole film, and basically takes over uh, to do whatever he wants to do. Now, the, the reason he does it is because he loves power and he loves the adulation. There's no other reason. He doesn't want to rule. He doesn't want to make things better. He just wants to be loved. Now, in his life, he loved and was loved by his father and his sister and then when his father's missing he turns his full attention in his sister and it's not the kind of brotherly sisterly love that um you really can get away with in any sort of society i um, think in roman times it was probably fine <laughs> well even, even then i think some people uh, were frowning upon it uh and it just defines this character now the way that he plays it uh, is just just straight up evil. It, there's there's no other reason for it. It can go over the top. He has a bit of an English accent, which all bad Romans appear to have. Um, and he's, he's just such a, a, it's a fantastic performance the way that he, he brings his character to screen. And it is a sort of a boo-hiss performance, but it's very, very memorable. Yeah, I think it's maybe why the films as well that maybe introduced Wacken Phoenix to a lot of people. Mm-hmm, definitely. Certainly it's the earliest film. I can remember seeing him in and just thinking, oh my god, this guy's so evil. Oh, he's the consummate spoiled little shit in that film. Like, there's everything about him that, that you're just like, there's no redeeming features. Now, sometimes they try and maybe kind of humanise the villains a little bit. No, he's just, yes. everything about him is awful. And it is, it does set up that kind of almost like, as you say, that kind of boo-hiss type of you're rooting quite clearly for one character over the other, but never in a sort of cheesy way. Mm. Yep. Yeah, he is very kind of pantomime his performance and yes. it really it really works it really does work mm-hmm. yeah it works for the film because it's that type of film you are want to be fully on board with uh, the main character you don't want to, there's no need for you to hold any sympathy for the the antagonist in this <clears> case at all yeah there's that all oh, that strange thing we sister and you're just like there's nothing strange about it. It's fairly straightforward, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to come out there and defend He's it. He's got like... a fair idea, you know. <laughs> I it was the Roman times and stuff, you know, which didn't seem that kind of film. Love it. Mm, yeah, yeah. And it's like, we don't really need any other reason to hate this guy. Ah, yeah, just throw uh, yeah, in yeah, Throw in some incest. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, look, I don't want to kind of go too many spoilers regarding the film, but... But you get to kind of third act and he takes on uh, Maximus in a square goal and you're like, what are you doing, mate? Uh, <laughs> come on. But even then, it's on his own terms, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, aye, aye, just cracking. Very yeah. good. And the, the fact that he wears white as well uh, in that sort of square goal, he's, he's uh, made out to be the, almost he wants to make himself out to be the good guy. Yeah. The all-conquering hero and all that, yeah. Aye. Yeah. Yeah, I think my favourite scene in that film with him actually, and obviously it's a very memorable scene when Russell Crowe gives his, his speech, but mm. it's just before that when he turns his back on him, he goes, "How dare you turn your back on me, slave?" And he's like really kind of like <laughs> so like affronted, like what? How the heck is disrespect is it this? It's just, it's just back to what you're saying, made about him being that kind of spoiled child. Oh, totally. You know. Yeah. Okay, my last pick is da, 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 uh, Annie Wilkes from Misery, played by Kathy Bates, because I'm representing the sisters on this podcast. Um, for me, um, 
when I think of Kathy Bates, I think of Misery. I will never, ever forget this performance. And I know you guys discussed uh, Stephen King adaptations on the last pod, and this is definitely um, one of my favourites. Um, I always remember my dad had a had a copy of Misery when I was wee and I used to be scared of it in the, the bookshelf I used to turn it round because the front cover was like this sort of it, it was like a kind of ca- sort of caricature of Kathy Bates and she was sort of heaving over him in the bed and I used to turn it to face the back of the bookshelf because I was so scared <laughs> of it so when I finally got to see the film um, it, it totally lived up to my expectations it was absolutely brilliant the dynamic between a uh, Kathy Bates and, and James Can is absolutely nuts because in any other film he would overpower her because he is you know the sort of tough guy the sort of wise guy or whatever but she's fucking mental like there's no two ways about it she is like peak crazy eyes in a, in a film like every time they sort of close up on her face she has this maniacal stare going on but she's almost sort of disarming in her kind of naivety and her sort of sweetness because you see around her house and she's this kind of you know plump sort of mumsy type of woman not somebody who you would associate with being a kind of villain um but you know the the whole sort of I don't want to can we do spoilers like how old is this film years old you know she takes a fucking sledgehammer to his legs like what kind of level of crazy do you have to be at like but the worst part is like in her head she's just the number one fan she just wants to make sure that you know he keeps on delivering i know this and as you say you know john you mentioned red and simpy of parody jurors i'm pretty sure family guy in a parody episode of this as well and um, where stewie is kathy bates which is hysterical <laughs> but it's just she's so she is this kind of like you know she's the typical sort of homespun americana sort of lonely woman and he you know is this strapping good looking author and the the dynamics are all wrong because he should be the one in charge but he's not and i think that's why i love it so much is because she she holds all of the power and he is this pathetic weak character which is not what you'd expect um from james can but yeah nobody does crazy eyes like kathy bates i think this is outstanding yeah, I totally agree. And like, um, we see at the beginning of the film, and she's quite likable. Mm-hmm. She's quite sweet. She's quite nice. And that's, I mean, she's sort of disarming in her kind yeah. of naivety and everything. Yeah. And by the end of it, you're just like, whoa. And speaking of the scene there with the sledgehammer, I haven't read the book, but if I'm not mistaken, she doesn't take a sledgehammer to his ankles in the book. She saws them off. What? I've not read the book either. As I said, I'm too scared of the front cover. But John, can you verify that? Uh, I can't remember. It's been such a long time since I've seen it. But um, was it not a? I thought it was an axe or something Maybe that she I, took to him. I just, yeah. I'm pretty sure she does uh, cut his feet off instead. And I don't actually know what visual. That's right. Yeah, it was, it was a, a meat cleaver because in one of the co- the copy of the book that I had, there was a meat cleaver actually on the book rather than Kathy Bates. It was when the book came out before mm-hmm. uh, the film. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think reading it. The idea of the feet getting sawed off is worse, or cut off, but that image in the film, it is just, oh, yeah. God, that scene is horrific. And yeah. it's just like, after that, I love you. And you're like, whoa. But again, it's like a lot of the villains that have this, like, really, like, okay, she's probably more batshit than, than John Doe and Uncle Charlie, sort of overtly with it. But there is, there is this sort of level of calmness and stillness about it as well, that you're just like, you are nuts. You are fucking nuts. it's an old film I'm sure people have seen it but it seems she kills a deputy guy the wee sweet old grandpa type guy and I'm like that's just crossed the fucking line (laughs) I'm like this is horrible and yeah it's just uh, it's it's been James James Cannon has done over 
and he's trying to kind of like poison her, so he's pretending to be nice and stuff. And she's just so. But this point, you know, she's insane. Yeah. But if you just turned this film on, you wouldn't think she was nuts. She'd think, oh, this is quite nice. We done another having. She seems lovely. And it's a film that really keeps you on edge throughout because obviously you're anticipating his sort of escape or what she's going to do next. So again, it's one of these films that you can never sort of settle into because there's so many moments like when he's trying to, you know, drag himself and get keys and stuff like that. And you're like, oh, just like a few inches more, just get it, just get the keys, get the keys. But it never, like you are, you're you're absolutely overwrought with tension the whole way through it. Absolutely brilliant. Great choice. Yeah, yeah good choice. Thanks. Yeah, I've went a little more kind of left field with mine. Well, the picks so far have all been pretty grounded and they're humans and they're quite plausible and believable. I went with Pinhead from the Hellraiser series <laughs> because like John and Night of the Hunter, I need to get in a Pinhead reference or a Hellraiser reference at least one point every podcast. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. And as Mary was saying earlier, I do like picking films that have like uh, start off pretty strongly and then the time it gets to like, the 14th one, it kind of dips a little. <laughs> But it doesn't matter how bad the film is, Doug Bradley's Pinhead is outstanding. He doesn't really do much else. He's kind of like, he's Robert, he's like Robert England in that kind of sense. You know, he's kind of, he's been typecast as the movie villain. Mm-hmm. He's the movie monster, he's Pinhead. He's absolutely brilliant in it though. And it's interesting because he, him and Clive Barker went to school together. They also shared a, they're also in the same class as Les Dennis, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> That's so weird. Yeah, because I remember doing that one time with Les Dennis, but instead I was so I could have probably been in Hellraiser if I asked. <laughs> but Doug Bradley didn't want to play the part. He wanted to play the part of a removal man in the film. This is a throwaway scene, but he felt it was important as an actor for his face to be shown. Clive Barker talked about him playing Pinhead, and it became one of the most iconic and memorable and legendary movie villains and monsters of all time and it really sets him apart from a lot of um like your michael myers and jason Voorhees, and even very quickly to an extent of that time was how he spoke he was very polite and eloquent and calm and he had that very kind of it was a throwback to the way christopher lee's dracula the way he kind of presented himself there was something very astute about him and he's utterly evil you know, he thinks it's fun, basically, to rip people to shreds with chains and cut them up and stuff. But he does it with an order. He's very he's very calm. He's very methodical. He does stuff because that's just what he does. He's bound by his own rules in a twisted way. And like I said, the films do dip very, very quickly as they go on. His performance stays great, though. Doesn't matter how bad it is. He played Pinhead in eight films, and then the ninth one, they changed the actor, and they made another one after that, and had a different actor, and it just wasn't the same. It wasn't the same, really, you know. It's He really did bring something to that role, and yeah, that's my choice. Have you seen the Hellraiser films? I think I've asked this before, but I can't remember. I think, John, you've only seen the first one. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I've only seen the first film out of the series, but yeah, the, the thing that did stand out was uh, his voice. Like you say, it was very uh, polite. It seems to be for a for a, a long time. It was uh, the the most villainous characters were polite. They were very a lot of them were very English as well. And yeah, uh, it's really it's it's all down to expectations. It's people that you think have uh, more than most people. So therefore, why do they need to? What what compels them to become what they become? 
uh, and it is more unsettling because these are the people you're supposed to look up to mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, but yeah, it was it was a fantastic performance. I I didn't realise he'd done eight of them, and I don't know if I ever get to see uh, the other seven. But um, you never know. I think they're they're kicking about in Amazon and stuff like that as well, aren't they? They're always they're yeah, always so. they're always available. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I ask what made him stop after eight? Basically, the nine film, um, the the studio was going to lose the rights. Mm-hmm. So they made what was called an Ashcan copy, where they just made a film for the sake of making a film. Mm-hmm. I bet they cared Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> 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 they said the point with this film is it was never meant to be released. Uh, uh, just because right. of like um, fan like pressure and people really wanting to see it. They released it and it didn't go down well. But they gave him the script and said, look, we're going to make this film. And he's like, this is just making this film for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. This is a guy, mind you, who has made eight of these films. <laughs> the I know at nine, he draws the line. <laughs> of the nine film yeah. was, wasn't good. Um, some interesting things about the Hellraiser series, though, because you got the, the, the fifth one was directed by Scott Derrickson and Henry Cavill was in the eighth one. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. so, I mean, it does have some kind of some wee gems in there of like um, people before they were famous type idea, you know. Uh, and like I said before about the fifth film, it's actually a decent film. It's very much a straight to DVD type thing in quality, but it's, yeah, it's pretty good. The sixth one's essentially a remake of the fifth one. The seventh one's not very memorable. Eighth one's terrible. Lance Henriksen's in it, which he's quite good to be fair, but he's not very good. The fourth one's in space. <laughs> <laughs> How do you go beyond uh, going to space? That is awesome. And said with such conviction too, Simi, like you're okay with this. The fourth one's in space, but my God, the ninth one is terrible. The fourth <laughs> one's also directed by Alan Smithy. Ah, one of those. Yeah. And it's, to be fair, I actually quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> but the third one, the third one's interesting because it's not a great film. It's cheesy. Nobody can act in it apart from Doug Bradley. But he absolutely... I mean, it's not hard to steal the show in this film, to be honest with you. But every scene he's in, he's just commanding. And it's got some of the best lines from the entire series in this film. It's actually... It's probably his best performance. But if you go back to the first film, he's not in it a lot. You know, it's cons- what we were saying. Like, all the best films aren't, really. I mean, considering how synonymous he becomes with the Hellraiser franchise and how, like visually memorable that character is he's not in the first one a lot he's not got a lot of screen time, he was never really intended to be this big character but he was just so good in it that he stole the show so to speak that's your homework go and watch uh, the first (laughs) hours of films get back to me John, your last pick my last pick is the child catcher from the Chitty Chitty Bang Bang film (laughs) Um. Surprising, this surprised me when I actually did a wee bit of research on it. The The character was never in, in the book uh, written by Ian Fleming. It was introduced to the film by Roald Dahl, who did the screenplay mm-hmm. for it. Now, the character uh, basically does what he says on the tin. He snatches children, but he's um, a character that... Um, he, he is the very epitome of evil. He is a villain right from the start. He's all dressed in black. He's stick thin. He's got a big nose. He wears a top hat. Um, and the way that he holds himself, uh, the way that he moves, his physicality, as uh, Mary has, uh, we were 
discussing it a couple of days ago. It just everything about him, the whole package just makes him evil and a villain. Now the character is played by a guy called Robert Helpman, who was a ballet dancer. And that really comes across in the uh, the portrayal of him. Apparently, there's a, a wee story uh, where uh, during one scene he was uh, actually on the cart that he uses. the 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 cart <laughs> The cart is almost as much a part of him as uh, like his his makeup and his uh, his demeanor, because it's uh, there's a facade of it being nice and friendly, and uh, once the children go inside, they actually figure out it's a cage. Well, he was driving this away as part of one scene, and uh, it started to tip over, and uh, Robert Helpman was able to get out of the carriage in such a balletic way that he almost like landed in his feet cat-like. Uh, this was Dick Van Dyke who was saying about this, and he was completely, he was totally in character. Well, all this mayhem was going on around him of things crashing and everything. <laughs> um, I just think that um, the characters that you see when you're younger have the sort of biggest, they have the first impression on you and they have the biggest impression on you. Now, this came out uh, late 60s, early 70s. It was one of these films that kind of forms what you think as uh, an evil villainous type character. Uh, I always remember one of my friend's mothers uh, banging on about the fact that when she took her son uh, to see the film, when the child catcher came on and caught the children, he jumped out of his seat and ran up the aisle and she had to go and chase him because he was that afraid. of the. And you, you can't get much more of an endorsement than that for a, for a villain, you know. Somebody that's that evil, it makes you want to run away from a screen. Do you think, yeah, that's that's just absolutely perfect. Yep, so that's my third choice. That's Very a good great choice. choice. I absolutely... I would love with that film. I have so many good memories of watching it when I was wee. But as you say, it's like that kind of formative narrative when you're younger. And it was like, do you remember at school, it was like, you know, if somebody offers you sweeties, you know, don't get in their car, don't get in a van or whatever. That is like the child catcher. It's the whole, you know, lollipops and just get in the back of the van and oh, look, you're now in a cage. It's yeah. it's exactly what you're told as a child to avoid um, yeah, no, a brilliant, brilliant performance. Robert Helpman is like probably terrorised so many kids, it's not even funny. Yeah, and it's that kind of age you're saying, Joe. I didn't know that either. It wasn't in the book and rolled down, could have done. It's twisted because I, mean, I haven't seen this film in over 30 years. I couldn't tell you anything about it apart from whenever that character's name is mentioned. I got a chill. <laughs> and it's almost like, you shouldn't be in this film. This is a kid's film. Why are you here? <laughs> you shouldn't still be terrifying me as an adult <laughs> yeah no it's that's really good picks awesome yeah yep. I didn't actually get quite a lot of feedback um, for this question which surprised me what? Uh, especially compared to the last podcast where everybody wanted to tell us about Stephen King didn't get a lot of people telling us about villains but we did get a few from Twitter none from Facebook boo you Facebook <laughs> First off, we have Bob Steele at Bob Steele 55 His three top villains are the Daleks, attempt to destroy the entire universe on multiple occasions, the Shadows from Babylon 5, they try to influence the evolution of the entire galaxy by causing wars and genocides over millions of years, and Sauron. Big scary eye. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're really good picks. They are. Yeah, yeah. Shadows is definitely a good one. Babylon 5 was one of my favourites uh, when it was on. Yeah. Really good. 
We also have Jafar77 at Jaifaz1977. He's gave us two um, different lists. I think he feels sorry for us because nobody else was contacted. <laughs> <laughs> he's got him as um, people villains and non-people villains. So first off, he's got Thanos, Joker, and Darth Vader. Nice. Yep. Doesn't say what Joker, mind you, just says Joker. So okay. Uh, he also has uh, the Alien from Aliens, Jaws, and Predator. Cool. Nice. Very good picks. Yeah. Very good picks. And last but not least, we have Jamie McKay at Jack's number one. He's gave us Darth Sidious, Stroke Emperor Palpatine, Hannibal Lecter, and Agent Smith. He didn't put Joker in his list because he thinks he's more than a villain. He's probably one of the greatest characters in comic book or movie history. So he didn't think he was even... The list was worthy of Joker. Interesting. I can agree with that. That's kind of what I was saying earlier. Like, if you asked, like, people, you know, name a movie villain, I'm quite sure that the Joker would come up quite a lot. He does sort of transcend this sort of... the comic book narrative, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I almost put Heath Ledger's Joker in my list, and... Then I was even thinking about well, what about um, Scarecrow in that film, in the first film, he's great. And then you got Bane, and then I could have just had like a, a top three based on the Dark Knight trilogy. <laughs> to be honest, I, I know it was really hard to narrow it down actually because there's like every Bond film, well not every Bond film, but most Bond films has given you a really great villain. There's so many like Disney villains that I like the animated uh, villains that I think have kind of impacted my childhood, and you always kind of think of them in a certain way. And there's there's so many you could pick from. Like it, it was really hard to narrow it down to three. Yeah, it's difficult. It was difficult. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I had a couple of Bond films. I had Scaramanga and uh, Le Chiffre, and um, the the only non-human one I really considered was Hal Nine Thousand. I thought yeah, that was a pretty good yeah. one. But then that's you know that's slightly different. I don't know if that's really a villain, but it, it would kind of worked. But so many to choose from. Yeah, loads. Very, very good picks. <clears throat> no. Murray, one small thing. Yeah. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? I'm going to go on a topic here that John alluded to earlier on in the podcast, unless I've cut it out, and for, uh, apologies if I have. So, <laughs> Martin Scorsese, he's been in the news recently for his somewhat snobbish comments regarding superhero films when he doesn't believe they're really cinema, doesn't have any emotional connection and he described them as theme parts. Now, Marcus says he's entitled to his opinion. He's a very successful director. He's earned the right to <laughs> say if he likes a film or not. But just because he said that doesn't mean it has to be taken seriously and doesn't mean he's right either. I don't think he is. What do you think Marcus says his comments regarding superhero films? I mean, I get that they're maybe not like you know i don't know like you know schindler's list sort of really worthy oscar winning content but they have a place in cinema of course they do because cinema is not just there to you know make you leave in a pool of your own tears it's there to entertain and and, and i i i popcorn blockbusters are are part of that and i think that you know enjoyment and spectacle is every much a part of cinema as it is making you feel something and I defy anyone to you know watch the sort of end of the Avengers cycle and not shed a wee tear like I I kind of get what he's saying because you know he's made these films that are sort of you know iconic and part of this huge sort of cinema canon of 
you know, he's sort of created a kind of subgenre within sort of gangster films and all that sort of thing. And I get that he's he maybe doesn't see them in the same light. And and he's right, they're not, they're not these kind of serious, worthy films. But I'm allowed to go and just not think for a few hours as well. That's truly that's part of the fun of cinema. Yeah, pretty much. I mean it's like <laughs> he's got a film to promote. Mm-hmm. He was asked about it. It gave his opinion. I think too many people are given credence to it, and he's worked too many people up. Which back in a case, yeah, old man doesn't like Marvel films. Next, instead, it's become a big thing. I'm sure Scorsese will be thrilled with that headline. Something <laughs> was I seen something? It was a uh, old man yells at clouds. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. And it's yeah, fun, you, I, can't, I can't ever think as well. See if said that's a bit of DC films. I don't think people would have cared. <laughs> You're probably right. It's sacrilege. You can't. You cannot slag Marvel. Yeah, Is we. He a producer and Joker. He was but... originally attached, but he fell. He fell off the project very early on to do Irishman. Oh right, okay. I thought he was going to be stayed on as a producer or something. Yeah, well, you've got to remember here, as Simi said, he is promoting a film just now, and he's promoting a film that is not coming out in cinemas. So, oh my God, you know, he's like Angus McFadden. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he is trying to get a bit of publicity. He's not above that for all the fact that he is a a, a filmmaker of some renown. He, he does do publicity and he knows how to uh, get people talking about his product as well as everybody else's. He's not above that. And if you look at some of the stuff that he has uh, talked about and uh, promoted in the past, it's it's not that far away from uh, popcorn, uh, mass entertainment cinema. He's, I think it, he, there is an element of him being trying to be a bit controversial about it to drum up a bit of business. Definitely, yeah. yeah. But again, he is entitled to his opinion. If if more than most. I think he is entitled to opinion about what is cinema and what's not cinema. I can fully understand it, but um, it does rub a lot of people up the wrong way because for a lot of people, cinema is going along and switching your brain off for a couple of hours and enjoying yourself. That's what it comes down to. It's entertainment. Now, whether you say that's entertainment, watching like a, a whole bunch of people going to the gas chamber in black and white or uh, people coming out of portals and uh, saving the universe, then... You know, it's a difference of opinion, but they're equally as valid. You can't really judge the quality or the popularity of something just purely based on an opinion of one person. It's a, a debate, and it's a debate that's going to go on, but as long as uh, these films are successful, then they're going to get churned out, and people are going to go and see them. But uh, the same thing, same way people are going to go and see the Martin Scorsese film as well. Yep. <laughs> it's something funny. Stay down, freak. Muscle says he was asked, he gave his opinion, he didn't lie. I don't think his comments were all that controversial, to be honest with you, but he seemed to ruffle a lot of feathers. Even James Gunn came out and said something about it. But then maybe because someone like James Gunn probably maybe idolises someone like Scorsese, so nobody wants their mentor or idol or hero or whatever to say, I think, what yeah. you're doing shit. So yeah. there's probably yeah. an element of that. 
Because a few people, uh, James Gunn mentioned this, and I saw the people mention it as well, saying when Scorsese made The Last Temptation of Christ, he had like the Catholic church after him and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I went, you're really comparing that to him saying he doesn't like superhero films? <laughs> Jesus, the original superhero? Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> I think that's a great way to end it. <laughs> Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Nah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go and see Joker again, I think. I really, really enjoyed it. It's good fun. Good, just entertaining on so many levels, but like something that actually makes you think as well. So it's kind of bridged the, the gap between the, the two. Thanks again for joining to the podcast, uh, for downloading this, streaming it, however you've listened to it. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please let us know. Um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, your thoughts on Joker, thoughts for an upcoming podcast, please email John on John's email address again. Podcast at moviescramble.co.uk. You could still be the first to email us. <laughs> <laughs> Something, please email John. This email address He's lonely. Email. He's sitting there waiting for the little ding to happen on his computer. I know, I know. It's, it's a sad life. <laughs> hope you enjoyed the podcast thanks mary and john for your time no um for people that aren't aware this is a sunday morning we've been recording this and some of us are a little delicate and by some of us you mean semi <laughs> i mean me thanks for tuning in bye-bye cheers bye i feel like i know you i don't want to see you forever well there's something special about you arthur i could tell but you don't listen. <laughs> I'm just trying to make him smile. You just my Joker.